You're listening to 2.23am with Dr. Christine McDougall. Are you ready for a new kind of success and fulfillment? End the silent struggle. Join us as Dr. Christine McDougall speaks to successful, high-achieving men as they share their journey towards a more fulfilling and sustainable life and business and discover the better alternative. It's 2.23am and the life of your future is calling. a better relationship or even a relationship what about sex more better what about freedom of expression or a feeling of freedom to be the podcast this week my last one for now with rob smith is a conversation that will give you perspective on the me too movement our hair trigger sensitivity the thought police how to maintain an extraordinary marriage for close to 20 years and finally the three stages of psychosexual maturity in a mushed-up world of the politically correct, hard-right, hard-left, hashtag MeToo, identity politics, too much, too little sexualization in the media, the rise of the fundamentalist view, this podcast provides contours for most of these experiences. I'm so excited by this episode and how it might add value to lives. Please listen and then if you love it, share. Let's help move the world of human relationships towards something with a more dynamic polarity rather than the explosive divide we have now. A little about Rob. Rob is a leader and social innovator in human development and integral meta-theory, advising entrepreneurs, executives and thought leaders on leading-edge social innovation, vertical development, leadership development and company growth. He is the CEO and co-founder with American philosopher Ken Wilber of Integral Life, a digital hub supporting the global trend towards meta-integrative human capacities, representing about 4% of adults in advanced economies. At Integral Life, he has spearheaded dialogues, courses and events that build skills and tackle pressing problems, including, including climate change and the rise of populism and the end of U.S. hegemony. Rob is a graduate of University of Nevada, the Venture Capital Institute, and held a certified management accountant and certified in financial management designations. He is a fellow of Desert Research Institute, a former fellow of Aspen Institute, and a former trustee of Nevada Museum of Art. He was named to Nevada top 20 under 40 lists in three different decades, and in 2012, he was nominated for the TED Prize. He gave a TEDx talk in 2013 on transformational life. Please enjoy this very extraordinary conversation. Thank you. So this conversation uh, was instigated following a post you made, I think it was on social media, about sex and sexuality, particularly from the female point of view. And you defined uh, um, four things that get conflated post the Me Too movement. And those four things were private preferences, beauty as ontology, evolutionary sexual dynamics, lust slash polarity as moral good, um, in this dialogue, which we agreed to be an exploration rather than presenting a thesis, I'd like to hear your thoughts on these four areas for the purpose of considering ideas and perhaps enabling a more integral perspective of sex in the post-Me Too movement. <laughs> um, it's a complex subject, obviously, and, uh, and we don't have all the answers, but I think it's a conversation really worthy of uh, discussion, particularly in light of the recent um, CES event where um, they deemed it inappropriate to have female sexual aids as part of, um, robotic sexual aids as part of a, um, a technological advance still. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think even just looking at the, the four areas, um, and obviously that was um, some time ago now, so even where you might have considered this further than that would be a great conversation. Yeah, happy to, happy to dive into it. To be completely honest, I, I actually don't remember the tweet at all or the, or the context that I was commenting on, but, but <laughs> let, us, let us go boldly into uh, the territory anyway, and I'll see if I can recall what that was about. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I have, I, I did actually make more notes on this. Um, uh, so you said uh, that Victoria's Secret sexiness is a sin in the leftist version of Victorian puritism and is not reducible to male attraction in petition male preferences. Um, versus La Perla, even Voss for men are validating the feeling of being sexy in private moments. Um, and so then you, then you said these four things that easily get conflated. So, yeah. yeah, so that was really sort of like the context and, and it is just a, a conversation that is still, you know, we're still suppressing. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, in fact, the, the latest thing blowing up on Twitter today was about the Gillette ad that came out with, I think this ah. is international men's day. And, uh, and so, yeah, th this does not seem to be something that's going to go away anytime, <laughs> anytime yeah. soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. So where would you like to start? Well, how about we have a look at these four areas as a, and, and uh, unpack a, um, just some, some of the thinking behind those four areas as a starting place and just see where we, see, see where we go. This isn't a place of destination or a place of, you know, sure. we're reaching a, this is going to solve the problem, but really just a discussion. So private preferences, beauty is ontology, evolutionary sexual dynamics and lust slash polarity as moral good. Do, do you still think that those those are applicable or have you even um, shifted your thinking around that? You know, no, I mean, as you, as you read that back to me, that, that, that seems basically right. That I think there's a lot of, uh, anytime we're dealing with complex territory, what in integral terms we would call a hyper object, meaning we have a term or we have a, we have an occasion like Victoria's Secret does something or, or Gillette, for example, puts this ad out today for, for men's day we have an object that is not this sort of just pre-given reality right. uh, where everybody can agree on precisely what just happened from an objective point of view. And in fact, what we have is, is uh, a complex objective reality and we have a complex intersubjective reality and then we have complex subjective realities, all of which are co-arising at the same time. And, and, of course, the, the, the problem we run into with any occasion or anything we look at or anything we talk about, particularly in a medium like Twitter, which tends to be, uh, you know, kind of uh, stultifying or cauterizing or it makes the collective discourse just not that, that much smart. You know, it, it lowers the collective intelligence by virtue of the short form that it is, is we, we can't easily unpack a hyper object without a fair amount of equally complex uh, and, and methodical and patient discussion, like, like, like we could do with a podcast, for example, which is one of the reasons I think podcasts are on the, on the ascent for some people, because you can kind of take more time to examine what are all of these, you know, different things that are all complex but you can start to piece it apart in ways that actually do justice to the reality involved. Um, and so with something like the Victoria's secret piece, and, and again, I'm not remembering exactly what the, what the, the ad was, or I think it may have been the runway show that had sparked some debate about whether they're still relevant. And, yes. and of course people were looking at their sales, uh, their quarterly, their annual, both quarterly, report of sales as well as their annual sales and saying, well, Victoria's Secret's in real trouble. And one of the first things I was pointing out, just strictly speaking, is that, you know, when we, when we are imbued in a uh, kind of a postmodern um, Me Too or post-Me Too environment where we have a hair trigger sensitivity to anything that might look like it could insult, insult anyone for any reason, yeah. immediately what happens is we kind of go into um, this hypersensitive mode where what we do is we sort of project our consciousness into the collective and, and immediately we start seeing ourselves and our own behavior and every word that's being exchanged as if it, the collective could judge it and say, well, wait a minute, what if I get collective sanction here because I'm, I'm now going being... To, I'm, I'm going to, just a second, 
I'm going to stop the video for me because it's, um, I, I want to make sure that I can, um, uh, we don't get, uh, I'm losing connection every now and then. Oh, so, you are. Okay. Yeah. So, so you're, you were talking about the hair trigger sensitivity uh, and how, um, in which applies to pretty much everything in the, in the current time and space. Yeah. So I think, I, I think the actual mechanics, the mechanics of the social sensitivity are, are kind of interesting if you watch them play out in your own consciousness, which is to say the moment, the moment we, the moment we either say something that we think might be taken sensitively, or we see something that we think could be a triggering semantic or a triggering structure of some form, Immediately what we do is there's a part of our brain that kind of emulates a social reality out there as if it is watching us and judging us. And, and I think what's happened as part of this hypersensitivity is we've become more and more uh, apt uh, at seeing ourselves as if we are on the other side of an iPhone recording us. And so we're constantly kind of, uh, enmeshed in this social consciousness where we're seeing our own behavior, we're seeing our own language, and it is making us in turn more and more sensitive to what we project as the social judgment that we think would be sort of cast upon us in, in these instances. Now, the, the positive moment there, of course, is that we are becoming more sensitive to uh, marginalized groups or we're becoming more sensitive to things where genuine oppression or genuine um, areas of, of care and concern and empathy are, are important and valid and, and necessary and, and emergent, frankly. Uh, and, and so that's, the, that's kind of the, the, the good news. The bad news, of course, is that we are also living our lives in kind of a projective social consciousness or, or through a projective social consciousness um, where we are then apt to also be super sensitive or super afraid of triggering. Um, and of course, for a lot of people, you know, their reaction to that is actually just anger. It's kind of, it's actual contempt. And so yeah. a lot of what I think we see from the, the putative kind of right-wing or conservative or traditional gender uh, identities is people who are actually quite, uh, feel, feel a lot of contempt or a lot of um, anger and frustration as what they perceive to be this new kind of eye in the sky on their behavior, especially as they feel like they are being judged, that they're you know, no longer adequate or that they're somehow they're, they're sort of regressive. And so um, I think that there's, there's, there's kind of a, a lot going on in terms of what the mechanics are. And then if we look at something like Victoria's Secret and, and, and what it is doing, I mean, here's this, here's this somewhat classical modern brand that sells this, uh, sells among other things, you know, sexy lingerie. And the question is, well, what's, what's going on there? And of course, everybody has these different ways of, you know, unpacking it. But, but some of the things that I mentioned, things like evolutionary sexual dynamics uh, and, and polarity and lust and the role of lust, uh, these are things that really, you know, need to be honored um, as we think about a brand like Victoria's Secret, which is serving a really important part of us as, you know, evolutionary primates. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you know, it's, 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 it's tempting, but not accurate to reduce what they're doing to um, just kind of a post me to, uh, you know, sensitivity uh, judgment, if you will. So how, how do you see it, it, it in the current lens? And, and, and I'm, I'm aware that predominantly people that will be listening to this is, have sort of a more integrally informed perspective, but it, it in the current lens, how do you see Victoria's Secret um, as serving um, number one? And how do you, uh, how if you were if you were the CEO, you know, how would you be in a conversation with their future? That's a great question, actually. That especially that that latter part of that question is is a really 
tricky one, isn't it? Because, because a brand like that, um, so, so the first thing I would say is, is don't, don't apologize for who you are. You know, don't, don't buy into the myth that what you are doing is sexist or that what you're doing is oppressive or that what you're doing is somehow morally improper. In fact, it is serving in, in the composite holonic being that, that, that we are as complex human beings. It's serving a really important layer down here in our overall needs and drive structure that is one of the most fundamental drives and needs that we have for both men and women. Yeah. Um, homosexual, heterosexual, doesn't matter. Uh, that, that this sex drive that we've got is, a, is an incredibly important, robust, and valuable, and beautiful part of the real, uh, mm. the, the real human experience and the real human ontology. And so I would say, do not apologize for that. Do not, do not pretend like that is something to be, to be looked at askew. And this was my point about kind of a postmodern uh, puritanicalism, is that as we come into this, this sensitive, this hypersensitivity where we're judging everything through this lens of, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to even know how to describe it. Everything is kind of up for debate as to whether it is insulting. And of course, everybody can always be insulted by anything if, if, if you give them the chance. And so that is a, that's a horrible and, 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 and both ineffective and not useful moral filter to place on, on our words and, and behavior. Um, and so I think, I think that they should understand that they serve something really valuable in the life world and that they should uh, do so unapologetically. Now, what, how that plays out strategically, I think, probably depends on their target market. It depends on their age group. Clearly, to the degree that their that their consumers may have shifting values, they they obviously then have an aesthetic responsibility, or mm -hmm. or a responsibility to to try to uh, meet the aesthetic and values of you know, they're, they're buying audience to whatever degree they, they, they want to. Uh, but again, if I look at something like La Perla, which, which mm -hmm. does seem, you know, very unapologetic about it being extraordinarily sexy lingerie, serving a really important function for its buyers who are probably, you know, wildly uh, loyal to it because it's very expensive stuff. I think there's an example of a business that is carved out a niche uh, is doing so uh, is doing so robustly, and they're doing it with products that that serve that niche. Um, but they're not. I mean, they probably have decided that growth at any cost is not necessarily what they're on about. And so I think the tension that something like Victoria's Secret will run into, anytime you are a large entity and you are selling to you know sort of across society and society's values are changing. There's gonna be a natural tension between how fast do you grow as an organization and how true to your core values do you stay? And there, there's gonna be some tension between those things because your core values may or may not be congruent with the emergent values that are coming online in certain other aspects of the population. And that will affect your company growth and you'll have to you know, you'll have to decide who you are as a brand authentically in order to meet that authentically. And I think that part of, and I'm not sure if you saw this because, <laughs> but Rihanna, um, not long after the sort of the, the, um, the Victoria's Secret sort of thing came out, she, she had her show with her underwear. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. Um, no, I didn't. <laughs> Yeah, so I because I looked at it and I thought she really is responding to a, a a changed world. So her models were all shapes and sizes, including a pregnant woman, um, and she really uh, she really went out of a way to just celebrate uh, women. You know, still 
mostly naked <laughs> women, yeah. Um, yeah. but in, in just this magnificent kaleidoscope of shapes, sizes, colours, identities and stuff like that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you put that up against Victoria's Secret, there was, it, there was a, in, in my experience, there was um, a, a, almost a whiplash of Rihanna kind of gets, that was what I, what I felt as a, as a woman observing that, um, that response. Um, because she was celebrating uh, women's beauty, but she was celebrating women's beauty and diversity. Yep, absolutely. And, and clearly one of the core values that, that I mentioned is emergent of the last, you know, 50 years is, is, is diversity is it. I mean, diversity uh, and the proliferation of diversity is, is clearly what is taking hold in, you know, what we would call the green structure of consciousness and the green arising of the last you know, half century. And so the, 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 like I said, that the issue I think is not that one is either better or worse or good or bad per se is that they're, they're sort of serving different places on the aesthetic or moral or, um, or, uh, or, or taste kind of function within within their audiences and so there, there is certainly a space for brands to arise on the back of that entire green structure and we see it you know we see it every single product category there is there's there's some new entrant coming in uh using a strategy and a brand identity around things like you know diversity or social responsibility or conscious production or you know whatever the right. Uh, whatever the thing they're doing is. On the other hand, again, because because you know much of what is judged as beautiful is sort of evolutionarily embedded in the brain, not just for men but for women and, and vice versa. Uh, there is something also to be said, and is true, in the classic beauty uh, in terms of the way people encounter it, and uh, I think that's why the, the classic you know, sort of modern brands have, have, at least to this point, stayed with more of what would be called a normative, you know, classically normative uh, sense of beauty. And of course, people are responding to that. So I think what we're seeing, rightly so, is a proliferation of options and a proliferation of voices. But I guess what I, I guess my point, both in the tweet and, 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 and otherwise is, is simply that 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 doesn't make Victoria's Secret, you know, more wrong or or more right. It's like this is a this is kind of a natural evolution of the universe as it as it seeks to fulfill and and serve different niches yeah. as these things arise. Yeah, and so let's have, just to, um, sort of circle back to um, beauty beauty as ontology because in um, in our current in the current world, uh, particularly the area that I live, uh, which is a beach-based um, <laughs> community, which means that the clothing is minimal to light year-round. Eight-year-olds <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, to get um, Botox injections and so on and so forth. Um, and I, it, it, so you know, that starting at that early age, and definitely all of the other types of cosmetic enhancements and so on, and. Yeah, you know, I, I think about that as somebody who's definitely older and wouldn't like anyone to put a needle anywhere near my face <laughs> for multiple reasons. You know, I've earned every single one of my lines <laughs> and they right. have a story to tell. Um, but also there's this, this, this um, you know, I'd, I'd really like to hear your thoughts and perspectives on how um, <coughs> we've, we've created uh, an elevation of beauty as youth um, which um, sort of negates beauty as uh, as age. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think there again this this feels like a hyper object, right? Because uh, if we look at it from the what we might say is kind of a biological or evolutionary point of view, it does seem it does seem uh, relatively clear that that is the case. And, and, and in fact, there was some recent studies that had come out in the last uh, few months that were reported on what the correlation between beautiful people was around, around different cultures uh, that men, you know, were, I think that they were looking at men, men attracted to women, uh, or it could have also, no, it was, it was men attracted to women. 
And what they found was that it wasn't, you know, necessarily high cheekbones or these other things, that, that the underlying factor was actually age, that all these things were more primal indications in the brain uh, of somebody who was more youthful. So why would that be what we think of as beautiful? Well, there's good evolutionary, evolutionary adaptive reasons for that in terms of uh, child rearing and, and you know, survival and passing your genes on and that kind of thing. So I think that, you know, the, the point is to not be reductive. Like that's one part of the story where yeah. we have this really innate brain structure where our emotional soup in the mid part of the brain triggers us with these really valuable drives, these important drives towards a certain kind of selection mechanism, sexual and mate selection mechanism in the environment. And that is, um, that, you know, it's certainly, it's, it's totally perfect, you know, perfectly valid and true that, that that might be the case, you know, as, as such, when we look at it as kind of yeah. a balanced system and, and a set of behaviors around that. On the other hand, it's not the full picture, is it? Because we also yeah. know that as we mature and as we, um, as we become more uh, both aesthetically sophisticated, as we become more, more, more morally sophisticated, as we become more, uh, you know, deeper interpersonally, uh, you know, the marriage, I've been married now almost 20 years, you know, the marriage that lasts 20, 30, 40 years, that, that we're also becoming more refined in how we would think about beauty as not just, you know, what is turning you know, the lower half of my body on or what is driving <laughs> sex drive in this instance, but it's also like the complexity of my discernment is, is this somebody who I can talk to? Is this somebody who can meet me? Is this somebody who is interesting? Is this somebody who is, who is, who has lived um, some experience and has some wisdom to share with me? And like all these other factors layer on to that core drive in a way that then expands it. So now beauty, at least if we're talking about just beauty, you know, in terms of, of, of attraction between us as, as yep. people, I mean, not beauty of an artwork or beauty of architecture, which is clearly also valid. Um, you know, the, the whole, the whole environment, the whole thing gets more and more complex and more, it develops more significance as, you know, Ken Wilber would say, or it, it, it develops more consciousness as to what we think of as beauty. And so again, it's not just biological or sex drives, all of which are great and they drive us and they're so, you know, they're so animating and they're, and they are stimulating and they feel great. But then there's also all this other stuff on top of it that's, that expands the picture. And so like so many things, we go from kind of monochrome to technicolor where we're seeing a wide palette of, of colors and, um, I think I think the I think the way we encounter beauty and the way we experience it through the life course uh, becomes more and more complex and more and more conscious over time. Yeah, yeah, I like that answer. I particularly like that answer as the age I am, because <laughs> you know one of the, the surprising things that they don't tell you when you're younger as a woman is as you get older, uh, most of the men in my age group are still looking at women. 20 or 30 years younger. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, see a, I see a lot of this, uh, both with my friends uh, on, on, on uh, both sexes. I see, I see, uh, I see the 40 year old women dating 65 year old men. I see the 45 year old men dating 28 year old women. I think that that, that, that is that one function we talked about earlier about, about youth being a preference on, on the one hand, on the other hand, I think that, as you find people who are more and more mature, you know, more and more developed vertically in these various lines of development, either psychosexually, aesthetically, morally, cognitively, like, you know, I, you know, I got to say for, for those of us who are, who are, you know, in, 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 in the community you and I hang out in, yeah, you know, being around people that are, um, you know, a lot earlier in terms of their maturity, uh, you know, we love them and we can be friends with them and what have you, but I wouldn't say they're particularly attractive to us because we're just in very different places, you know, in our life. And so I think there's also these other areas that, 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 that open up. Yes. Yes. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, on so the other hand, I would also say though, 
you know, for, for a woman who gets Botox or a woman who gets, uh, gets fillers or whatever, that, that's another instance where I don't think there's, for me at least, there's no moral judgment of that or there's no sort of, I don't, I don't find that off-putting in, in, in a way. Um, and, and in fact, only that person can sort of authentically report on whether what they're doing is congruent and healthy for them. Because immediately the question comes up, are they doing it because they're coming from a place of lack and shadow and, and real sort of um, something that's almost like trying to cover up for trauma, uh, in which case it, it's, there's, a, there's another set of questions that, that, would, that would arise in terms of the right way to handle that versus somebody that says, no, I actually just want to look my best and I feel better this way. I, I feel more beautiful. I feel younger. I feel more alive. And if that is the subjective report, then I think that's a really beautiful thing. And I think, I mean, me sitting here with my designer pants on or my nice sweater or my shoes or whatever, and I woke up this morning and I said, I actually want to wear this to, to look a certain way. It would be horribly hypocritical of me to, to say that, uh, you know, human beings shouldn't be allowed to show up yeah. in whatever they perceive is their aesthetic best foot forward. And that's, that's another area where I think we have to be really careful is that when we talk about the validity, sort of the validity claims or the validity truths of, of these various things we're discussing, I think we have to be really careful to honor the first person perspective of the person who's actually in it even though I have, I have my own second person perspective about what they've done, I actually think we need to kind of inquire into their first person perspective before we can ever really have a fair and comprehensive sense of discernment around whether it was appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, and definitely um, a lot of men are getting fillers and Botox as well. So it's not an absolutely. exclusive club. <laughs> yeah, um, but also, you know, I've colored my hair for years and, and uh, this is the, we may wear makeup. It's, uh, it, it's just uh, different uh, levels of that. But I agree with you. It, it comes down to uh, why we're doing something um, and, and the story that we've got running behind that, whether it is from lack and shadow or not. Right. So on the, I, I'd love to hear more about this, uh, this, this uh, lust slash polarity as moral good <laughs> and what you mean by that for a start. And then, uh, um, because, the, yeah, to, to me, a, a large part of this lust uh, polarity, you know, I, I still sit in the question of why uh, in this day and age, there is such this taboo around sexuality and particularly female sexuality, the female that is a highly sexual being as a part of her identity. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like it's, it's cliche to say that the traditional structures have judged the sort of archetype of the, the whore, the whore archetype in, in a really brutal way for all kinds of reasons that uh, have to do with social sanction of a certain kind of behavior by females. What I think it, what I think it accurately recognizes is that females actually have the power. So one of the things that, that I've been trying to point out for several years now in, in Me Too and post Me Too world is actually that women have more power than men sexually, hands down. Um, if we're not talking about a situation of, of physical domination, something that's, yeah. that's horrific, like rape or what have you. Um, if, so bracketing those aside, just yeah. in your standard, more or less safe social situation, there is absolutely no doubt that women have more power than men sexually in every environment, in every case. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think what, what the, traditional, uh, the traditional cautions are are accurately uh, aware of, even though I'm not sure that's the right response, but they're accurately aware of was that power, that power differential. But of course, as we've come into the modern era and then the postmodern era, uh, you know, all of that sort of gets reinterpreted, it gets reconfigured, 
and, and there is a, you know, you pose a very good question, which is, you know, why in this day and age do we still struggle with the question of female lust? And maybe, maybe it's, it's more appropriate to say, uh, you know, we, we actually have to differentiate which environments or which subgroups are actually struggling with it. Because, again, if I, if I talk to my friends who are women uh, who are, you know, on apps or on Tinder, all these things, it's like, and maybe that's level the playing field for both sexes, but they don't seem to have any real uh, compunction about their sexual liberation at all. And I, and you know, I actually think that's quite uh, quite appropriate. I mean, assuming that developmentally, they're able to handle the behavior that they're engaging in, um, yeah. they're old enough and mature enough to do so. Then I think it's great. I mean, you know, it, it's it's they're they're on the adventure, and it's the greatest adventure in the world. So when I talk about lust as a moral good, I actually that that's precisely what I mean. I actually think that lust and polarity, the the polarity between two beings who find themselves sexually polarized, and again, it could be two homosexual people who are who are uh, attracted to each other in in highly polarized lustful ways, or two heterosexual people. That part doesn't matter. What matters is that the polarity is there. We've all felt that sense of lust. We've all felt the charge of that polarity. And that's an extraordinary, animating, uh, powerful, energetic gift, I think, of, of, being, uh, of being human, at least. I mean, you know, this, yeah. this is our experience, so we'll talk about our, you know, what it's like to be human. It's, and it's just an extraordinary gift. So I find it to be I do find it to be a moral good. And of course, it also is a moral danger because there is so much energy there and we have to be very careful with it. Um, and, 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 and this is why, of course, we have very, very strict rules around pre-adult uh, sexual boundaries and we, you know, we, we protect our little people. And I mean, so that all comes with the territory. But, but if we're talking about adults, uh, I, I just think it's it's something that needs to be defended as a as as this like beautiful and supreme moral good. Yeah, yeah, and, and so I mean, really, what you're saying, um, uh, which of course to me makes a lot of sense, is that that all of these things, are, um, like like life in general, uh, we can inhabit them more fully when we actually have the developmental capability to inhabit them more fully yeah. <laughs> in, in, in the in the earlier part of our lives lust is probably a a, pri a very primal response but it can become a a beautiful mature um and integral part of a, a, a of a human expression absolutely and you know the, the the truth is that inhabiting anything more fully always requires it to have inhabiting it a lot less fully along the way <laughs> So, right. so hey. all, of, all of our experiences in our early 20s, whether it was our, you know, the more about that. What's that? So, oh, no, I was just going to say, say more about that. Uh, you know well, what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, that, that, you know, if we think about our early experience, uh, you know, any of our early adult experiences, let's say our early 20s, whether it be, you know, the stupid things we say in our career where we're learning interpersonal skills or yeah. we're learning the the art of being politic in situations where we should be and shouldn't be or we're learning you know how to make uh, better judgments with money or we're learning right. about our own impulses and how not to act on them or, or when to and you know certainly you know our, our sexual uh, maturity is is still probably a long way from being mature I mean this yeah. is all this is all a beautiful and necessary part of the of of the of the of the vertical development journey that is life, and so again, I think that any time we look at a hyper object, like any one of these really charged and complex uh, territories, we have to not only look at it from you know subjective and intersubjective and objective and 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 systems points of view and. And sort of get a, a feel from it from those areas and look at it through different validity points of view and, and that kind of thing. We also have to be aware that developmentally there's a lot going on and, and, and it's happening differently for different people at different stages of development. Yeah. And the appropriateness or not of their experience or their behavior within that domain for their stage of development 
has to be judged on its own terms. It can't be judged on, on your terms if you're at a different, if you're at a different yes. stage. Yes. Yes, it, it sort of comes back to um, uh, uh, religious freedoms um, is a right for you as long as it doesn't affect my religious freedom. <laughs> you know, like we're all, we're, we've all got the opportunity to have our own, um, our own worship in the privacy of our homes, but don't yep. impose yours on mine um, and vice versa. Uh, and, and so, <laughs> um, so if you look at where we're, well, particularly in the United States, because, um, you know, I've always experienced the majority of the United States from a sexuality, um, um, uh, body, body, um, you know, covering up, etc. as quite conservative, mm. uh, um, you know, um, and, and it's so interesting, and I'm just going to share some regression that's occurred in my own local community um, around this. So when I first went to the United States, which was back in the 80s, um, it was common for me and anyone else, any other woman, to go to my local beach and sunbake topless. Yeah. More. So it would be seen as inappropriate. I don't know what the, I don't think there was a rule change, but that, you know, so you just don't do that anymore. And another thing that I've seen as a regression that disturbs me quite profoundly is um, the swimming pool that I go to regularly to train the the women's showers were all open and there was no change cubicles and in the last couple of years they put in change cubicles because of the sense this comes back to your sensitivity the sensitivity and it's actually um, while there is, there is some sensitivity in, in the adults it's usually the older women that walk around buck naked without any issues but it's the young kids, it's the eight-year-olds coming in to do that are absolutely shamed by their bodies and, and need to hide them. And I look at that as a, as a regressive and deeply disturbing <laughs> factor. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know whether there was a question in that, but, um, you know, the... the do you, do you see any sense of that, you know, that, that we're actually... There's a, there's a level of um, regression occurring to some degree? Yeah, I think that it's, it's, it's sort of, it's regression via progression, unfortunately. So it's as we've become more sensitive, as we've become, you know, again, this is the, the sort of positive and negative moments yeah. of this. As we become more sensitive and we are able to appropriately project ourselves into this sense of empathy for, wow, that person may have been embarrassed or this person may have had that experience or, you know, 30 years ago in my childhood, I remember I had a bad you know, bad, the bad thing happened there or bad, you know, I got embarrassed. Like all of that, all of that is real. But unfortunately, what gets tossed out with that is any sense of discernment about what is developmentally uh, healthy. So to your point, if we are teaching everybody that being constantly triggered or being constantly sensitive or being constantly sort of afraid of, you know, our own body or others' bodies or, or what have you, that, that what happens is, as you say, it has all kinds of negative byproducts, one of which could be shame, one of which could be uh, the, you know, the, the inability for people to feel like they can ever express their mind. And, of course, a lot of the, the blowback against this stuff is a sense of, of being restricted freedom-wise. I and mean, that's the, the, the main underlying core fear being expressed against this sort of postmodern value system is, 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 is against freedom. They, they feel like that it is stultifying. They think that it is culturally rigid, that it is, it is somehow thought policing. And that's not entirely unfair. I mean, there's, that's, there's certainly a lot of fuel for that criticism that you know accurately so but yeah of course it has all kinds of unintended consequences and negative byproducts and of course when we step back from that what we just pointed out is nothing else nothing other than the long-term cyclical dialectic of right. you know one set of things being cured you know one set of diseases or sort of being cured by the the next set of solutions that create their own diseases that Right. will have to be integrated and, and cured by the next, you know, the next generation as it integrates the partialities yeah. of the current milieu and the current, the current thought systems. And what, of course, we 
I guess, enjoy through an integral perspective is already seeing where green and the postmodern things are partial, but not just partial and completely wrong, partial and, and, and partially true. And they can be integrated in a higher synthesis that then takes into account things like development, things like yeah. um, these multiple perspectives and the complexity of the situation. So that, for example, if you were going to design, just to be very concrete and practical about it, if you're going to design showers uh, in this new uh, environment <coughs> today, you wouldn't necessarily have to design them like you did in 1975. But you could design them in an integral way, thinking about, okay, well, what is the right way to parse these various realities in a way that's developmentally healthy and accounts for the most truth in that situation? Hmm. So, so more a common giving, giving, uh, giving the person choice. I can, I can share in the open and change in the open, or I can use a cubicle. Could be that it could be that you it could be that you have a have a family shower so that so that the the young person if they're showering and let's say you're eight year old they can go in with mom and yeah. they can be given a good role modeling in yeah. in the moment about not having body shame I mean these yeah. sound kind of tr like trivial things but actually if if yeah. if you were a if you were an awake designer to the yeah. developmental realities that you were trying to account for, um, you know, it may be just small tweaks over existing design, but at least you've accounted for it. At least you've thought it through. Yeah. I don't think it's trivial at all, actually. I think it's, it's uh, um, th those type of things are definitely uh, have really um, uh, powerful long-term consequences. Well, we, I mean, as, as parents ourselves of young kids, we, we face this question really every day, every week. Uh, you know, do we talk about, do we talk about the penis? Do we talk about the vagina? Do we, do we allow the kids to shower with each other and up to what age? Do we, yeah. um, do we, uh, how do we talk about sex? How do we talk about, mm -hmm. and, and, and the way we think about it is, is sex as a, as a biological function. Sex yeah. is a spiritual function. And sex is an adventure. I mean, those are kind of the yeah. three ways we parse it with our kids. And of course, as they get older, we're able to unpack those three things in more and more complex ways. But it's not just, hey, sex ed, here's the thing. And, and you know, this is the result. Or, you know, so we're, we're trying to give it some dimensionality that allows them to see it in a more sort of full uh, landscape that over, you know, between the time they're 10, 9, 10, 11, and the time they're 15 to 18, it, and, and, you know, maybe even by the time they're 25, we're still having conversations with them about the further reaches of, of, of consciousness and, and, you know, Tantra or whatever there is. So it's like all these things are possible once you have uh, a, a – once you allow yourself the freedom to say, actually, this is both more interesting and complex than, um, than it – it would be if we just treated it as a single kind of, you know, mono object. Yeah. Um, very good. Cause I was going to ask you about how you're, how you're managing this with the kids. And so I, I I'd love to know you said, congratulations on being married for nearly 20 years. Um, that's just really awesome. And so what have you, what have you, you know, between the two of you, um, how do you keep animating the aliveness within a marriage and, and, and how have you, how have you sort of, um, growing up within in how you do that yeah yeah the the, the second part of the question I'll, I'll take first which is uh how do we do that so i would say the, the first thing is is just structurally like having the structure of our life our time together uh the the family environment and that comes down to like you know the, the house you pick the financial condition you put yourself in the kind of job you take on, like all those things all have real and not insignificant impacts on the life you lead as, as a, as a married partner, uh, mm -hmm. and as a spouse. And then of course, as a family and the family is really taking its cues from the marriage. So I would say that all of those things we've actually done quite consciously, uh, with the understanding and, and with frankly, the dedication that, that the marriage comes first, there, there's no other, there's no other real core value that comes before that in our lives. And that includes career, it includes money, it includes 
even the kids. The marriage comes first because it's the foundation from which everything else, um, you know, either is is more or less healthy. So, so there's a structural component that I think we've tried to be uh, conscious about. Um, from a kind of an inner subjective component or, or kind of a, a, a lower left point of view where we're, it's like the interior of the relationship, what, what we are really, I think, pretty clear about is the degree to which our core values are really, really well aligned. Then we value the same thing at the core and on top of the core values, uh, we have skills that, that, that seek to serve those. The things like, you know, we're both conscientious and we're both, um, you know, we're, we're both, willing to be vulnerable with each other and we're both uh we're, we're both uh sort of open to new experiences and 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 try to keep the uh the, the both the, the the mental and emotional landscape well tended like a garden you know that you know keep keep it growing um i would say the other thing there is that at, at the deepest core of at least our relationship and our marriage we see it as a container for the further growth and development of, of both people. And so it's not just marriage as a commitment uh, in instrumental terms, like, well, we're, you know, we're, we're going to be, you know, uh, we're going to be just sexually committed to each other. And we're going to raise a family and we're going to share a bank account There's something broader. I think at work where it's the commitment is really to holding each other in this adventure of growth and development yeah. uh, over the life course. Because yeah. let's face it, I mean, what, you know, one of the main reasons we're seeing divorces amongst our friends is because, you know, the growth goes like this. Either, either yeah. the growth goes like this, you know, separating apart, you know, I'm separating my hands here left and right, or the growth goes yeah. like this, where one person starts growing a lot faster than the other for any number of reasons. And, and no matter how you measure the hands, whether left or right or, or up or down, the distance is growing. And the moment that distance grows to some point, it becomes a breaking point for the relationship. And so the, the number one thing we see, at least in the integral community and as well as with a lot of my friends, is we're, we, you know, the, the, the growing apart function is just really, uh, really hard and it, it, it breaks the relationship apart. So I'd say there's a structural component. There's kind of a spiritual commitment component. There's, there's a shared core values and, and skills uh, component. And then, you know, we just, we try to show up for each other a lot. We have, you know, we have date night at least once to two night two nights a week. Uh, we try to keep the polarity alive. I mean, constantly um, because we know, even just knowing the term polarity goes a long way. Like, okay, how am I polarizing my relationship from a point of view of attraction? Have I changed my clothes? Have I, have I gotten in the gym? Have I done something adventurous? Have I done something surprising? Have I, um, have I brought more of myself forward as a strong masculine, for example, if I think that turns her on? Or if, or if she knows something turns me on, does she bring that forward? Like all those things are on the table. Uh, and, you know, it almost becomes kind of a game because it's always, you know, you got to always kind of keep it fresh and, and, and do cool stuff. But personally, I think it's the best game in the world. It's the most fun game in the world. Very well. I, you don't often hear that, uh, and so because I wanted to ask you, I think you've you've probably unpacked it with the way that you've described this. Um, the marriage comes first. So, so I, I just wanted to clarify that what you mean by that is that you have made um, a choice as a couple that the the relationship you have with each other is the priority, um, and the health and the viability and the ongoing aliveness of that relationship is the is the first priority. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so did you enter marriage from that stand? Um, I would say actually at the core, we probably did. When, when, when she and I, when she and I got married, we, it was like a lightning bolt for both of us. Neither one of us was really looking for marriage. Neither one of us was, we were both very happily independent people. Um, and we knew what we had in each other early on in a way that we, that gratitude, that sense of that, that sort of really deep lightning bolt magic was with us almost from day one. We were engaged within 90 days. 
Um, we, you know, we saw each other about 24, maybe 48 hours after we very first met. And, and we've been pretty much inseparable since that, you know, 48 hour, you know, period. Uh, and so th there's just a really deep sense of gratitude that we had found each other and that's still alive. And, and as I said, it's not, it's not, it's not just that we got lucky, which we clearly did, but it's, it's that we also nurture it. Like when we go, I mean, I'll just be very concrete. Like when we go on a date night, uh, we go intentionally go spend time with each other just for several hours talking. One of the things we're doing is we're keeping alive um, in sort of anthropological terms, almost a myth. And, and the myth that we're keeping alive is how grateful we are to have found each other. And it's not a fake myth. It's a real myth, but it's still, it's like, you know, every tribe has its myths that, that animate the, the spiritual core of that tribe, right? Nations, yeah. great yeah. teams, great families. Like, these stories are really important. Well, I think marriages actually need to keep their stories alive as well. So we're constantly revisiting how cool we felt in yeah. this experience or that experience or how neat it was and how grateful we were. And it just, it keeps the myth alive in a way that's really quite extraordinary and, and I think uh, really important. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I appreciate and value and I'm sure people will um, greatly appreciate hearing. So just, just in sort of closing, I just want to circle back to the, the um, um, just the conversation about um, uh, sexuality and so on. Other than what we've discussed, is there anything that you would you would see that is really important for those of us who um, have the developmental capacity and so on to to forward healthy sexuality in both male and female? Is there anything that we should we could be looking at, focusing on, or conversing about, or um, you know, to, to really uh, create models that uh, can support the trajectory of humanity in this yeah. well i mean one of the things that that i talk to a lot of my friends about just in my private conversations with them is the three stages of psychosexual maturity and um i mean you could probably be more granular and be a lot more uh, uh sort of nuanced about it but to put it in sort of general terms you know stage one psychosexual development we have a kind of a traditional understanding of our general rules um, and this is, you know, traditional man, traditional woman, if we're talking about a heterosexual relationship. And I think we more or less kind of understand that, uh, what, what that feels like, what it looks like, cause we've been around, we've all been around it for a long time. I think what emerged, uh, you know, in the modern era is then sort of stage two where, where, and by the way, just to mention stage one has a lot of polarity because it has these traditional roles, but they're actually quite distinct and they're quite, they're quite removed from each other and the power dynamics are different. And um, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's very near to the earth as it were, sort of in terms of our evolutionary past, this stage one understanding. Well, what stage two modern relationships did is it sort of had the male, the masculine become more sensitive, the feminine become more, I would say autonomous and, and maybe aggressive or, or independent in a way that they, they both kind of got closer to each other in terms of, uh, in terms of what was, uh, wh where they were in stage one. And so what happens is the polarity collapses. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of the folks that I talk to, um, and when they tell me, Oh gosh, I've been, you know, I've been in this relationship for eight or 10 years and I just feel like we're best friends, but there's no sexual spark or, you know, all these different things, or I, I hear from girlfriends of mine that are, that are single and they're talking to guys that, you know, that are out there and they're like, you know, I feel like I'm talking to a girlfriend when I'm talking to these guys. And so I just, I give them that quick understanding say, well, one of the things that's happening and it's no one's fault. It's just, a, it's just the nature of the developmental process. I think we're in as a culture and society is, is right now kind of, at least in, in many of the, the cosmopolitan West areas, the cosmopolitan West uh, tribes and cultures is this stage two understanding is, is kind of what's looked at as the most sophisticated way to be sexually. Well, it, and it's, but it's confusing our boys in a way, yes. right? Mm -hmm. It's confusing our boys and it's kind of, at least in my experience, disappointing our girls. Uh, and, and so 
the, the, the thing, I guess the, the liberating thing is to know, well, actually there's a stage three. There's a stage three where you can uh, sort of preserve but transcend. You can preserve the polarity and the, and the, the power and the, uh, the, the, what was interesting and distinctive about your stage one psychosexual self. You don't have to dismiss it and let it go at stage two. You can also preserve uh, the sensitivity for the male, for example, from stage two, but you don't need to, you know, that doesn't have, that doesn't have to be the only thing you serve. Uh, and, and for, uh, uh, for, a, for a feminine, for the feminine, you know, preserve uh, what she gained in the stage two, uh, but also, you know, included in a higher synthesis in stage three. And so stage three is where both, I think both partners in a polarity. And again, I don't, I don't want to get into male, female, talk more about the masculine and feminine uh, as, as sort of energies, this autonomous energy and this community, this communal energy or this, this wholeness energy and this partness energy. Um, they can, they can dance it more, creatively and chaotically and in in really cool ways at stage three um in a way that's very dynamic to the context and dynamic to the needs of both partners in any situation by constantly tapping back into what was what was uh their capabilities from stage one and their capabilities from stage two but now they're doing it in a much more flex flow kind of way that's contextual and it becomes an extraordinary and powerful dance for stage three psychosexually mature people. And the good news is I think and mostly when I say this, people are like, okay, where do I, where do I find that? And I say, well, yeah. you know, the, the first step is to become that yourself, right? Go, yeah. go in this journey yourself to look at how you can move into these this later stage yourself and, and don't then be surprised as you attract uh, and you enable and you start to bring into your life people who actually can meet you in precisely that way. Yeah, it, thank you. That's a really beautiful expression. Um, I'm, I'm aware of your time. I just, if you've got a couple of minutes, I'd really like just to um, speak a little bit more about the polarity piece that you're, you're talking about, just um, to make sure that there's clarity around that. And so I'm going to sort of put my interpretation of that, um, obviously, in, um, I have a um, medical science background, so biology and so on, um, polarity um, is required to hold the shape of any ent entity, essentially. <laughs> um, if you don't, so in a cell, if you don't have polarity, you have collapse or explosion. Uh, right. and, and so I think what I'm hearing you talk about is, is at, at this stage three, is a conscious recognition that polarity is necessary for healthy existence. And, and a dialogue and um, a, a, a dialogue between both parties on on who holds what type of polarity and how to keep the tension of that polarity fully expressed and it's a constant ongoing evolutionary engagement is that what I'm hearing you say that's brilliant you just you just, you just said it actually far better than I did that's a that's a brilliant <laughs> summary of what is happening at stage three and and you did bring the polarity in it um in a really beautiful way because that's exactly right it's it's actually maintaining the structure and the beautiful part is the more skillful and the more conscious that the partners become um so talking about structure and shape is is the, the broader the polarities and the bigger the container gets so the mm. more you can hold the more yeah. the more uh, the more uh, of life you can hold. I remember I talked about the container being a developmental container for these two souls to go on the, go on the ride. And that's what becomes possible is this amazing thing where almost there's almost nothing that can't be held within the container um, as it grows and, it, and it's, and it's, and its walls become stronger uh, and that, that becomes pretty powerful. It was a pretty amazing experience where you can't imagine why you'd ever then be outside of the container. Yeah. 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 It's actually the work that I'm doing in organizations is, is the, the leader is steward or the steward leader. 
um, and but also really in the structural design of the organization that enables people to show up in their um, agency within a community and to do that in a way that's incredibly elegant but the yeah. The steward leader, um, you know, one of the, the most critical roles is the ability to hold the space or hold the shape of, you know, what is being created. And that requires a polarity, um, yeah, yeah in, in, in the design, you know, of, of what's being built. So I, I really love this last piece. Um, I think that's going to be so helpful. It's helpful for me, <laughs> but so helpful for, um, for people who are uh, trying to swim out of the weeds <laughs> and going, this just does not rock my universe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Too much same, 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 same. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, and, and, and what's being, and what's unfortunate, uh, unfortunately, is that, that the stage two person is rightly saying on the one hand, well, I'm not, I don't really know that I want to be attracted to somebody who's in stage one because it feels like there's something regressive there, regressive there. And that's an, that's sort of an accurate, apprehension on the one hand but what it's doing then if it's just replaced with well you know I also don't know why I'm not attracted to these stage two guys is it becomes very frustrating because they can't figure out well why does nobody kind of meet me and the answer is well because you're not forgiving within yourself the fact that you actually want something that is a polarity you actually want something that's intention you want something that is both as the the sensitivity you're looking for and yeah. if you also want to be polarized with the strong masculine or the the feminine in a particular way or or, or what have you and so it, it does uh what what this does if nothing else is at least give people permission to say ah now i can see why i'm frustrated now i can think about you know different ways to to maybe uh do something about it fantastic very good. So is there any closing comments that you would like to throw into the mix? Well, it's just, you know, great to talk, talk with you. Nice to, to see you again. As I said, this is, this is all it's fun, complex uh, territory. So uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully we'll um, continue to have a chance to chat about it. And hopefully your, your listeners will find it, you know, worth, worth listening to, into. Yeah, fa fantastic. Well, thank you uh, very much for being um, part of this conversation. You're listening to 2.23am with Dr. Christine McDougall. Are you ready for a new kind of success and fulfilment? End the silent struggle. Join us as Dr. Christine McDougall speaks to successful, high-achieving men as they share their journey towards a more fulfilling and sustainable life and business and discover the better alternative. It's 2.23am and the life of your future is calling. <laughs>